Luke chapter 1, reading from verse 26. The birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Well, we heard at the start um, about the really, really bad choice that Libby made. Um, Finian, her son, was just nudging me all the way through going, it's her own fault. I mean, she didn't even use an ironing board. And uh, we speculated between the two of us that if she's only ever ironed twice in the whole of her married life, then maybe actually putting up the ironing board was a step beyond Libby, and he, John would know how to do that. But apparently, you use the kitchen table, and that may have been the fundamental flaw um, in the choice that you made. The reality is that all of us make choices every single day. Look at the person to your left or right. They have made a choice. Don't judge them on their fashion choice this morning, but they have made a choice, uh, perhaps, to wear the clothes that they're wearing, and you're looking at them going, really? You chose that? Um, well, yeah, they did. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it was all that was clean. Do you know that the average Western adult, the number of choices that we make, or have to make, every single day is, I want to get the figure right, it's 35 thousand choices every single day. Just think about that. 35,000 choices every single day. And in fact, the number is getting higher. Because of the advance in modern technology, etc., we are being given more and more choices to make every single day. So it's no wonder that some of us feel by the end of the day that we are completely overwhelmed. Just think of that moment when you kick your 
legs out of bed and you make it to the kitchen. Breakfast and the number of choices that you have to make. Will it be red milk? Will it be green milk? Don't even get me started on blue milk. Will it be organic milk? Will it be a different type of milk? Will it perhaps be shreddies or Weetabix, sugar or no sugar, brown sugar or white sugar? Will it be tea or coffee? If it's going to be coffee, what type of coffee will you have? Will it be from Kenya? Will it be from uh, somewhere in South America? Will it be from somewhere else? Will it be caffeinated? Will it be decaffeinated? Will you make it instant or will it be in a filter or will it be in one of those really, really environmentally friendly coffee machines? that you've got, but you shouldn't have because of the uh, little things that are not good for the environment. Um, maybe you will have orange juice, or if you're really trendy like Mark Cameron, you will have a berry smoothie that you will make from scratch in your smoothie maker every single morning to give yourself the illusion that somehow you were healthy because you were <laughs> drinking a berry smoothie. Will you have toast or a croissant? If it's a croissant, will it be a brioche or not? Will it have chocolate or not? Will you have toast? If it's toast, will it be brown bread or white bread? Will it be wholemeal, sourdough, whole grain, granary, or just plain old toast? Will it be a breakfast that you are pleased with? Will you use butter or margarine, jam or marmalade? If it's jam, will it be blackberry, raspberry, strawberry, apple conserve? Will you go all out at Christmas and get that Marks and Spencers one that was really, really nice last year and I'm hoping will be available again this year that was an orange marmalade but it had something else like cinnamon in it that made it just taste like Christmas on toast. It was just unbelievable. Okay, we've reached the end of breakfast... And those are all the choices that you have already had to make. 35,000 choices. You haven't even started to get dressed yet. If you're married, your partner has not yet brought in the numbers of garments for you to choose for her to wear. Irrespective of what you say, you will say the wrong thing. You will make the wrong choice, and that's a, a lesson that you have to learn very early in married life if you're married. So all these choices are coming at you. And then a few years ago, they invented this thing called the Internet. And the Internet just went ballistic with choice. And social media just contributes more and more to the choices that we make, whether it's Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook, depending on what generation we are in, social media faces us every day with the reality of other people's choices. FOMO, the fear of missing out, is based basically on other people's choices. We think that they have made better choices than us, better choices where to eat, better choices where to go on holiday, better choices in general. So whether it's Snapchat or Facebook or Instagram or Tinder, whatever choice... Oh, more pe interesting. More people at the 9 o'clock service knew what Tinder was <laughs> or were prepared to admit it. Uh, maybe that's an interesting statistic. But social media is based on choices. Many of the soap operas that we watch every week is based on watching other people choose. Strictly, X Factor, Celebrity, whatever, get me out of here. They're all based on choices. And our society's motto seems to be, it doesn't matter what you choose, but that you make a choice. 
And somehow the ability to choose is something that in the Western so-called developed world we think is really, really important. But life wasn't always like this. Life actually was simpler, but the choices were more significant and more profound. Issues around life and death revolved around the choices that you made. It's still like that in many parts of the so-called developing world. There is no choice about which breakfast cereal you have. You're simply grateful to have something to eat. When we were in Tanzania a few weeks ago, Kathy and I went to a, a World Vision uh, community project, which was a very simple and very basic porridge that the local community had been taught how to, um, to make. And we were given some, and it was delicious. But it was so basic, it saved children's lives. It was so simple, but it reduced the mortality rate in that local community. It was the same in first century Palestine. The choices that people made were very simple. Life in rural Judea in northern Israel around the turn of the millennium 2,000 years ago was life was harsh and tough, but it was very straightforward. There were clear rules for life, which if you broke, often sadly resulted in death. Jewish culture let you know exactly where you stood, who was in and who was out. And the choices often revolved around life and death consequences. Economics was simpler. You ate what you grew and you looked after your own. Family was important and honor, as it still in, is in many parts of the Middle East, was incredibly important. A good match in marriage could mean the difference between life and death, between hunger and poverty or survival. It was that basic. And the wrong choice, well, the wrong choice in marriage could mean ruin, it could mean dishonor, it could mean shame, and it could, in some cases, and even today still does, lead to death. Which makes the events described by Luke in Luke chapter 1 that James read for us a few moments ago all the more startling. As I said in the prayer, they're words that we're very familiar with. We've all heard them. We've been to the school nativity plays. We've heard them recited by a P6 child, halteringly, falteringly, nervously. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. You'll know that in first century Palestine, betrothal, being engaged, was taken incredibly seriously. There were no Facebook engagement shoots, but a legally binding agreement between the two families, which only divorce or death could break. You were betrothed, you were engaged for a year, after which the couple would then move in with each other, but they spent the 12 months getting to know each other and, more importantly and fundamentally, agreeing the price that would result from the marriage. Mary, when Luke introduces us to her, 
would have probably been a pre-teenager. Most likely she would have been 12 years old. She would have been a child bride in our terms. Promised to an older man, a master carpenter called Joseph. Somebody with royal lineage, a descendant of King David. His who do you think you are episode would have blown people away. Joseph was a really, really good catch. Joseph, marrying into his family, would have meant economic security for Mary and, more importantly, her family for years to come. But then, on an ordinary day, something extraordinary happened. An angel appears to her. And what struck me as I read the account again this week was that Mary was not phased by the appearance of an angel. Now, we don't know what the angel looked like. We don't know whether the angel was disguised as a first-century Palestinian, not to give her the heebie-jeebies. We don't know whether the angel, as is often portrayed, was about six foot seven, built like a, a, a Scottish second-row forward with enormous wings and was glowing. We don't know what the angel looked like, Not that a Scottish second-row rugby forward looks like that. Um, Maybe they should. Um, But we don't know. But what we are told is that Mary is not phased by the angel appearing. What disturbs Mary is not the fact that the angel appears. What disturbs Mary is what the angel says. Verse 28. Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. And in response, Mary responds thoughtfully. It's what the angel says that really throws her. You who are highly favored. In the the Greek, the language that the New Testament is written in, the word is keikaritomene. It means you who are highly favored. Literally, you who are a recipient of God's grace. You're highly favored. You're highly chosen. And we're told that Mary is troubled by his words. The literal translation is she wondered about his words. But again, the word that's used has more significance than that. Literally, she's making an audit. It's an accounting phrase. She's adding things up. She's weighing the pluses and the minuses of what has just been announced to her. She's weighing it up and pondering it. And then it gets worse because the angel tells her that she will conceive and give birth to a son. It's very easy to read things into this story that aren't actually there. So the angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she's to give birth to God's son. And Mary says, "Woohoo!" The only problem is it doesn't actually say that. Mary is disturbed by the angel's words because she starts to think through the implications. What's going to happen to her marriage? What's what's Joseph going to say? What's Joseph's family going to say? What is the rest of the community in Nazareth going to say? And could it mean death for her? Could it mean stoning for her? Because if this is really true, then great dishonor and shame which is perhaps the most important thing in that culture, great shame would have been brought upon Mary's family. 
and her own parents might even have joined in with the stoning of Mary. So it wasn't good news. This gospel was not good news because it threw everything that was predictable up into the air. And it made all sorts of things unpredictable. And she doesn't even get to choose her firstborn's name. The angel tells her, you will call him Jesus. Or Joshua, Yeshua, literally. Because he will save his people from their sins. And the middle names that the angel tells her to give the baby, well, probably aren't in her top ten either. He will be called Great and the Son of the Most High. Imagine that in the school register when the names are being called out. Yeshua, great, son of the Most High, Bar-Joseph, me. Even that has been taken away from Mary. Mary responds thoughtfully, but secondly, she responds practically. How will this be, she says, since I'm a virgin? I haven't had sex with anybody. In fact, I couldn't be betrothed in marriage if I had. How can I become pregnant since I'm a virgin. Her faith is not blind or simplistic, but practical. She'd been trained by her culture to believe that God could not and would not become a human being. But as we follow the story through, she goes from incredulity to discovery and then acceptance. So by the end of what we have in our reading, verse 38, she says simply, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. I don't understand it, I haven't got all the answers. I know this could be costly for me and my family. I don't know what Joseph's going to say or what Joseph's family's going to say or do, but if this is of God, I'm in. But then what happens next, I think, is really significant. Because God doesn't leave Mary to simply rely on an angelic visitation. That's quite significant. God, after centuries of being silent, has spoken. The thing that the people of Israel were waiting for for centuries was now starting to happen. He sends an angel, a messenger, literally, to Mary. She eventually says, okay, if this is of God, I'm in. But see what happens next in the, in the next part of Luke's gospel, which happened just after our reading finished. Mary leaves Nazareth in verse 42, and she gets reassurance from a person. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we can be so spiritual that we think it's all about God talking to us. Well, actually, God knows that we need human beings to speak to us as well. And so Mary goes to the one person who will understand what she's going through. She goes to see her cousin, Elizabeth, perhaps before she begins to show and the gossip begins in Nazareth. And she leaves and goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, somebody who will understand. Sorry, because, well, Elizabeth is pregnant too, in remarkable but different circumstances. Elizabeth, who is way past childbearing age, who thought that it was never going to happen for her and her husband, Zechariah, now is six months pregnant. And when 
Elizabeth sees her cousin coming, something happens. The baby, who is to become John the Baptist, leaps inside Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is supernaturally filled with the Holy Spirit, bursts out. She knows what's happening to Mary. And Mary realizes that Elizabeth understands what's happening to her. And that all the stuff that the angel had spoken about is true. And that's when, that's when Mary bursts into song. Do you notice that? Mary doesn't burst into song. She doesn't burst out with what we call the Magnificat. Tell out my soul, the glories of the Lord. She doesn't burst into spontaneous prophetic worship in response to the angel. She bursts out with this song of of justice. She bursts out with this song of hope. She bursts out with this song of fulfilled prophecy. She bursts out with this song of God putting right what humanity has made wrong in the world. She bursts out with this song of thanks and praise when another person, another human being, confirms what the angel has said to her. It comes through a human being. Even though what's happening inside her is supernatural, even though what's happening inside Elizabeth is supernatural, it happens through a very human interaction between two people, two mums-to-be who understand what's really going on. And now we have two women, two women who know each other's secret. Two women who understand that God is on the move. Two women who understand that what's been prophesied and hoped for and longed for for centuries is about to come true. And the only three people who know what's going on are two women, one of whom is a 12-year-old girl and one of whom is a bloke the only bloke at this moment, the only man who knows what's going on, and he can tell no one. The man has been struck dumb. The professional religious man who was in the temple on that special day, when God revealed to him what was about to happen, he was so full of unbelief and doubt that God strikes him dumb. And he can't actually speak until his own son, John the Baptist, is born three months later. Isn't that fascinating that that God gives this incredible news of the most important event in human history to two women, and he gives it to one man, but the one man can say diddly squat fascinating that God arranges it in that way. Just as fascinating that the news of the birth will be given to shepherds who can't give evidence in a court of law. Fascinating that the news of the resurrection of Jesus will be given to women, again, who couldn't give evidence in a court of law. The song that Mary sings, 
A song that speaks of a kingdom that's coming. A song that speaks of a world being put right. A song that speaks of wrongs being righted, of injustice being made good, of the world being put back to the way it was meant to be. Things are starting to happen and events are starting to unfold. So the kingdom is starting to be revealed. Mary has a choice. Mary has a choice presented by the angel. And she decides, thoughtfully, practically, weighing it up with the pros and the cons, reassured by not just a supernatural messenger, but another human being who knows how she feels. And Mary decides to say, yes. And because Mary says, yes, in humble obedience, everything in history and everything in eternity is changed forever because a 12-year-old girl says yes. And today, there are parallels with what we are being asked to take part in as a church. Today, we have an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of 150, 200 children in a place called Pajuli in northern Uganda. It's a community in the north of the country which has been deeply affected by years of living in fear of the Lord's resistance army. This movement that made many, many child soldiers and brought devastation and destruction to that part of Uganda. Over the last 20 years, there's been incredible poverty, hopelessness, destruction, and damage. But it's also a place of incredible generosity. I was talking with Tim, the chief exec of World Vision, before the service, and he was telling me that this particular area have received a million refugees from Sudan in the last few years. Now imagine, you are the poorest of the poor in northern Uganda. You have very little anyway. What is your response going to be when a million refugees come into your land, into your community? Do you know what the people of northern Uganda have done? They have given a plot of land to every single refugee family. So it may be a place of incredible poverty, but it's also a place of incredible generosity. Imagine if the people of Scotland welcomed a million refugees, not 20,000 a year across the UK, or 5,000 to Scotland, a million. And we said to every single refugee family living in the UK, you can have your own house. That's the scale of what we're talking about. People who have so little are already being generous with what they've been given. And that's the community that we're being asked to partner with. Where we can play a part in that community's recovery. Where we can help to bring hope where there's been fear. Love where there's been hate. And innocence where there's been exploitation. World Vision are just going into their first year of a 15-year involvement in that local community. That's what World Vision do. They go into a, a local place and they work there for 15 years. And right from the start, they go in with an exit strategy. 
They don't want to build a dependent culture. They want each project to be self-sustaining. And Kathy and I were fortunate enough to be able to see that in Tanzania two or three weeks ago. We went to a project that was in year 14 of the 15-year project. And we saw the difference that it had made. But we also saw that the people there were ready to run those projects themselves. That in 12 months' time, when the World Vision Tanzanian staff withdraw, those projects will carry on without the World Vision Tanzanian staff being around. And so I'm asking you to think about committing to being a child sponsor in northern Uganda. The cost is £6.50 a week. Works out at £26 a month. £6.50 a week is less than two cups of coffee from Starbucks. That most of us just buy without thinking about it. For £6.50 a month, we can change a child's life. And for every one child that's sponsored in northern Uganda, another four will benefit from that sponsorship. We're the first church in the UK that's being asked to take part in this project called Chosen. And here's where it flips. Because for years, child sponsorship has been done in a certain way where if you've been at an event or a service like this, there have been a whole range of photographs of children from Myanmar or Kenya as we partnered with 10 or 12 years ago. And it's always felt, let's be honest, slightly awkward that we've stood there and picked a child. Well, what World Vision have done is they flipped it. And what this project does is in some small way, it, it redresses the power balance. And it gives the choice, not to us, to choose the child, but it gives the choice to the child in the developing world to choose us. And it might be, because these children have so little, it might be the first choice that they will ever have had the power to make. The power to choose one of us to be their sponsor. A handful of churches around the world have done it. It began with a church in the center of Chicago, a church called Soul City. And just want to show you a quick video of what happened when they did what we're doing today for the first time in March. I saw that video two months ago. I still can't watch it without crying. I don't know what it is. But every time I watch it, and it doesn't matter who I show it to, I showed it to my hairdresser. Um, I do have one um, three weeks ago. And she was in tears watching it by the till, and I was in tears with her. Because there's something about the dynamic which has just changed. To give a child that has never had that power to choose, the power to choose, is incredibly powerful. So that's what I'm asking each of us to do today. Now, there might be something else that God is saying to you. There might be a situation in your life that you're wrestling with, that, that when Libby was talking earlier on and we were thinking about, he's in the waiting, he's in the waiting, there's something going on in your life where God is asking you to say yes. He's asking you to trust him. 
It might be with a health diagnosis. It might be with a relationship difficulty. It might be some situation that no one else here knows about, but God knows about it and you know about it. And just like God spoke to Mary, he's saying to you, will you trust me? Will you submit to me? Will you hand over control of that person or that situation or that doubt or that fear? Will you give that to me? But I want to encourage some of you as well to respond thoughtfully and practically to whether God is calling you to sponsor a child in Pajuli in northern Uganda. At the end of the service, there'll be World Vision staff all along here, and they would love to help you to do that, to take your photograph, to take down your details, including your bank account details, so that you can give regularly. And you will then have your photograph taken, and those photographs are going to be taken out this week to this community in northern Uganda. And here is where it does get a bit bonkers, because I'm going to be there. On Tuesday, I'm going to get on a plane. I've got the AGM on Monday night, always the highlight of my life. And I'm on a 10 to 6 a.m. flight on Tuesday morning to Amsterdam and then on to Uganda. And then when they have the equivalent of that event that you saw in the video, the chosen party in Pajuli, I'm going to be there. When your photographs are pegged up in that schoolroom, I'm going to be there and watch the children choose some of you to be their sponsor. I'm not going to influence them. I'm not going to stand behind the child and go, don't go for them. Very dodgy. I'm not going to do that, but once they've chosen, then I'm going to have the privilege of being able to sit down with the child and ask them, why did you choose that person? Would you like to know a bit about that person? Would you, know, would you like to know a bit more about them? And where I can to share a bit of what I know about you. See, we have the possibility to make a difference. We have the possibility of giving a child in Uganda the chance to choose us so that they can choose, but in their choosing, we can make a difference. That we can help fulfill the words that Mary sings of in the Magnificat. That what is wrong with the world will start to be put right, and those who are lowly will be lifted up. So at the end of this service, once we've sung the two songs, maybe you need to go and get your child from one of the primary age groups and you want to have it as, a, as an individual or as a couple or as a family, you can have your photograph taken, they'll take down your details and then they'll be taken out to Uganda. Not by me, because they don't trust me with the photographs. Someone else far more responsible is going to take them and I'll go out on Tuesday and join them. And then next Sunday... In the ground floor hall, there'll be, hopefully, a whole number of envelopes pegged up. And those envelopes will have your names on. And inside those envelopes will be photographs of the children that have chosen you. And hopefully, a letter from that child to you. So we have the chance to make a difference. If we respond thoughtfully, 
if we respond practically, reassured by a human being that this is what God's saying, and we have a chance to join in and respond to what God is saying to us. Libby.